Section eight of the French Revolution by Thomas Carlyle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Golding. The French Revolution by Thomas Carlyle. Volume one, book two, chapter four. Maurepas. But now, amongst French hopes, is not that of old Monsieur de Maurepas one of the best grounded? who hopes that he, by dexterity, shall contrive to continue minister. Nimble old man, who for all emergencies has his light jest, and ever in the worst confusion will emerge, cork-like, unsunk. Small care to him is perfectibility, progress of the species, and astria redux, good only that a man of light wit, verging towards fourscore, can in the seat of authority feel himself important among men. Shall we call him, as haughty Chateaurieux was of want of old, Monsieur Faquinet, diminutive of scoundrel? In courtier dialect, he is now named the Nestor of France, such governing Nestor as France has. At bottom, nevertheless, it might puzzle one to say where the government of France, in these days, specially is. In that chateau of Versailles we have Nestor, king, queen, ministers and clerks, with paper bundles tied in tape. But the government? For government is a thing that governs, that guides, and if need be compels. Visible in France there is not such a thing. Invisible, inorganic, on the other hand, there is. In philosophes saloons, in eux de boeuf galleries, in the tongue of the babbler, in the pen of the pamphleteer. Her Majesty, appearing at the opera, is applauded. She returns all radiant with joy. Anon the applauses wax fainter, or threaten to cease. She is heavy of heart the light of her face has fled. Is sovereignty some poor Montgolfier, which, blown into by the popular wind, grows great and mounts, or sinks flaccid if the wind be withdrawn? France was long a despotism tempered by epigrams, and now, it would seem, the epigrams have got the upper hand. Happy were a young Louis the desired to make France happy, if it did not prove too troublesome, and he only knew the way. But there is endless discrepancy round him, so many claims and clamours, a mere confusion of tongues. Not reconcilable by man, not manageable, suppressible, saved by some strongest and wisest men, which only a light jesting, lightly gyrating Monsieur de Maurepas can so much as subsist amidst. Philosophism claims her new era, meaning thereby innumerable things, and claims it in no faint voice for France, at large, hitherto mute, is now beginning to speak also, and speaks in that same sense. A huge, many-toned sound, distant, yet not unimpressive. On the other hand, the Oeil de Boeuf, which as nearest one can hear best, claims with shrill vehemence that the monarchy be as heretofore a horn of plenty, wherefrom loyal courtiers may draw to the just support of the throne. Let liberalism and a new era, if such is the wish, be introduced, only no curtailment of the royal monies. Which latter condition, alas, is precisely the impossible one. Philosophism, as we saw, has got her Turgot made controller-general, and there shall be endless reformation. Unhappily this Turgot could continue only twenty months. With the miraculous Fornatus's purse in his treasury, it might have lasted longer. With such purse, indeed, every French controller-general that would prosper in these days ought first to provide himself but here again may we not remark the bounty of nature in regard to hope man after man advances confident to the augean stable as if he could clean it expends his little fraction of an ability on it with such cheerfulness 
does, in so far as he was honest, accomplish something. Turgot has faculties, honesty, insight, heroic volition, but the Frenaticist's purse he has not. Sanguine controller general, a whole Pacific French Revolution may stand schemed in the head of the thinker, but who shall pity the unspeakable indemnities that will be needed? Alas, far from that, on the very threshold of the business, he proposes that the clergy, the noblesse, the very parliament be subjected to taxes. One shriek of indignation and astonishment reverberates through all the chateau galleries. Monsieur de Maurepas has to gyrate. The poor king, who had written a few weeks ago, Il n'y a que vous et moi qui aimions le peuple, there is none but you and I that has the people's interest at heart, must write now a dismissal and let the french revolution accomplish itself pacifically or not as it can hope then is deferred deferred not destroyed or abated is not this for example our patriarch voltaire after long years of absence revisiting paris with face shrivelled to nothing with huge peruque a la louis quatorze which leaves only two eyes visible glittering like carbuncles the old man is here what an outburst! Sneering Paris has suddenly grown reverent, devotional with hero-worship. Nobles have disguised themselves as tavern-waiters to obtain sight of him. The loveliest of France would lay their hair beneath his feet. His chariot is the nucleus of a comet, whose train fills the whole streets. They crown him in the theatre with immortal viva, finally stifle him under roses, for old Richelieu recommended opium in such state of the nerves, and the excessive patriarch took too much. Her Majesty herself had some thought of sending for him, but was dissuaded. Let Majesty consider it, nevertheless. The purport of this man's existence has been to wither up and annihilate all whereon Majesty and worship for the present rests. And is it so that the world recognizes him? With apotheosis as its prophet and speaker, who has spoken wisely the thing it longed to say? Add only that the body of this same rose-stifled, beatified patriarch cannot get buried except by stealth. It is wholly a notable business, and France without doubt is big, what the Germans call of good hope. We shall wish her a happy birth-hour and blessed fruit. Beaumarchais, too, now has winded up his law-pleadings, not without result, to himself and to the world. Caron Beaumarchais, or de Beaumarchais, for he got ennobled, had been born poor but aspiring, assyriant, with talents, audacity, adroitness, above all, with the talent for intrigue, a lean, but also a tough, indomitable man. Fortune and dexterity brought him to the harpsichord of Madame, our good princesses Logue, Grey, and Sisterhood. Still better, Paris Duvernier, the court banker, honoured him with some confidence, to the length even of transactions in cash, which confidence, however, Duvernier's heir, a person of quality, would not continue. Quite otherwise, there springs a lawsuit from it, wherein tough Beaumarchais, losing both money and repute, is, in the opinion of Judge Reporter Guzman, of the Parlement Montpieux, of a whole indifferent acquiescing world, miserably beaten, in all men's opinions, only not in his own. Inspired by the indignation, which makes, if not verses, satirical law-papers, the withered music-master, with a desperate heroism, takes up his lost cause in spite of the world, fights for it against reporters, parlement, and principalities, with light banter, with clear logic, adroitly, with an inexhaustibly toughness and resource, like the skilfulest fencer, on whom, so skilful is he, the whole world now looks. 
three long years it lasts with wavering fortune in fine after labours comparable to the twelve of hercules our unconquerable Caron triumphs, regains his lawsuit and lawsuits, strips reporter Guzman of the judicial ermine, covering him with a perpetual garment of obloquy instead, and in regard to the Parlement Maupieux, which he has helped to extinguish, to parliaments of all kinds, and to French justice generally, gives rise to endless reflections in the minds of men. Thus has Beaumarchais, like a lean French Hercules, ventured down, driven by destiny, into the nether kingdoms, and victoriously tamed hell-dogs there. He also is henceforth among the notabilities of his generation. End of section 8. Recording by Greg Golding, Georgetown, Ontario, Canada.